Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast, episode number 122. Jim Burnworth from Western Extreme, examining the anatomy of the perfect bow shot. Big Buck Registry is a virtual museum of hunting stories. We preserve a piece of Americana by interviewing and recording hunters about their hunts and experiences from across the country. And who knows, maybe we'll learn a thing or two along the way that'll help us take our hunt to the next level. Hey, this is Steph Brown, the Ohio Huntress. Get ready for another amazing episode with Jay and Dusty on the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Hunting Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Stephen Fuller from The Hunting Ground. You are listening to my favorite podcast on the internet. The Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. Hi, this is Jean McFall, finalist of Extreme Huntress from Boise, Idaho. You are about to listen to one of my favorite hunting podcasts of all time, the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. Welcome to the show. This is Jay Scott, your host of the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. You know, I'm psyched you're joining us right here, right now. There's no place I'd rather be. And I've also got my good friend, as usual, from Ohio, Dusty Phillips. What's happening, everybody? I'm, I'm glad to be here, Jay, and I hope everybody's having the best of luck in the Whitetail Woods this season. Yes, sir. Um, I'm having some amazing moments with my son in the in the woods we're seeing deer uh i'm seeing turkeys i'm shooting at them not hitting them but i'm seeing them and it's part of it it's part of it it's part of it man it's just such a great experience to be outside and be part of that whole thing and you know and you know as, as we are going to be talking with our guests it is so important to make that whatever it is you're hunting whether it's deer elk mule deer turkeys it's important to put a value on them and a value that they are a resource and that we need to conserve them and take what we can when we can when we have those abilities but that there is important these these animals are important and without that you might as well just kiss the entire species goodbye because nobody's going to care right uh, it, it- yeah, you know, it comes from a, a long history of hunting and, and what it's come to today. Exactly. So we're kind of transitioning out of some of the, the archery hunting, um, but I did ask a friend of ours, Jim Burnworth, who has a TV show on the Outdoor Channel. Yeah, Western Extreme. Western Extreme. He is one of the most technical people I've ever met, and it kind of goes back to his father in being in the the digital age in the the, well, the 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 tv age of video um he's just super technical in everything he does so i we asked him to join us to kind of break down a few different things number one we wanted to learn more about how he studied the anatomy of the bow shot you think about all these great tools and how how the bow has progressed over time and all the fancy cams and wheels and you know, limbs and and quivers and 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 arrows and there, I'm not sure there's anybody else that I've talked to out there even the bowtex you know even the 
even the manufacturers themselves. I'm not sure there's anybody out there that's really studied the bow as Jim Burnworth has. Yeah, Jim's like a Rolodex of critical, factual intelligence and super, super intelligent on the bow. Yeah, just he just rolls rolls it all into one. You have to pay attention to this show, and you probably have to play it two or three times. I have to be honest, because there's some things that you've probably maybe never heard the terms on occasion. But once you understand what he's saying and you apply it to your life as a archer, it will improve your shot. I guarantee it tenfold because there, there are things you're doing today that you can improve upon with the help of Jim Burnworth's insight and his studies. So listen very closely and play it two, three times and take notes. And, and then there's just, there's all these other things in life that he's, that he's studied and has experienced get into a little bit of the anti-hunter, get into hunting with his children. Just He's just a great all-around guy, and I just I love listening to him talk. And I, you know what I like about Jim a lot is how he says, bro. He always calls you bro. Makes you feel like you're part of the family. Right, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so um, I, can't, uh, I can't thank Jim enough, but let's, uh, let's get into this interview with Jim Burnworth. Jim Burnworth, welcome to the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. How are you, my friend? Doing really, really well. I'm excited. We're talking about Big Buck. <laughs> Our favorite favorite topic of all time, I have to say. Exactly. That's what you do after hours. If you're not hunting them during the day, you got to be uh, you got to be talking about them at night. So I'm That's in for sure. That's right. Hunt them during the day. Talk about them at night. That's, that's just the way it goes. <laughs> yes, sir. Exactly. So, Jim, where are you right now? Well, I'm actually in Montana. I just finished doing a, a public land hunt with both of my daughters, and uh, and now I'm trying to fulfill my own tag with a bow. So we're out here in Montana in a little lonely town out of Eklaka and uh, trying to make it happen. Lonely towns are good for big bucks, I heard. Yeah, especially in Montana. It's not the big skyscape state. It's the big buck state. <laughs> that is true. Very cool. So, Jim, where are you from originally? We talked a little bit last night, and you're kind of filling me in on some of your background, but where are you from? You know, I grew up in a little town called Tillamook, Oregon, and uh, now that I've been able to travel the world, and in many ways, I, I just feel like um, what a, how fortunate I was to be able to grow up with the people that I've got to um, you know hunt with, the lessons that I learned. I truly believe after now being everywhere that some of the best hunters I've ever met in my life, um, real woodsmen live in Oregon. You know, the, the mm. town is full of, full of, uh, loggers and, uh, the timber and the country is extremely street steep and wet. And I grew up basically hunting blacktail bucks and, and, uh, and Roosevelt bull elk. And those are just priceless things and lessons that I learned that helped me today, you know, in many ways. Oh, no kidding. So, so Oregon is your, is your place of origin and, that is, that's kind of do you attribute that to your 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 mental toughness, your physical toughness, and uh, learning or knowing what you know today about the outdoors and the the hunting? Is that do you attribute a lot of that to living in Oregon? Yeah, definitely. You know, I mean, like I said, it's it's a it's a logging community. Um, you know, I wasn't a normal kid when I was growing up. My father actually invented, invented video electronics, and so. Um, he had a hand of manufacturing plant there and um, I didn't play sports. I wasn't a basketball kid. I wasn't a soccer kid. I really believe that I was an archery kid. And, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time mentoring and teaching as well, because I really believe that a lot of those kids that don't identify 
in a normal atmosphere with a bunch of them can be self-taught and self-study and spend time by themselves competing against themselves and becoming better and finding the outdoors is amazing, you know, but that's really, that's really what I did. I either worked, you know, right after school. And if I wasn't working, um, I basically was in the woods, you know, driving the, driving the hills and hanging out with a bunch of people that were really, really, really good. Some of the toughest hunting in the whole world is there. Right. A black tail buck is extremely smart. He's nocturnal. You know, I could count on both hands how many truly mature five, six, seven-year-old deer that I saw there, you know, growing up and uh, the, the millions of miles that we put on the trucks just looking for them, you know. Very interesting. So your your dad, you said, uh, he invented video electronics. Yeah, my dad's kind of like, a, he had a, he, I lost him um, a few years back. He's my best friend. You know, you can't have the conversations with anybody else like you can with your father. And my dad was like a, truly a Forrest Gump. It sounds ridiculous, but he broke 27 world records with cards. His name was on the side of the blue flame. <laughs> um, he built a Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 deep space probe mirrors. They're on the way to Andromeda and every single planet um, outside our solar system that we see are reflected from those mirrors. They work through a series of uh, like uh, uh, noise that's sampled, and then um, we actually see those planets. And then he worked on the exact SR-71 that broke all the speed and altitude records. Had a bunch of boys from Lockheed because he was building brilliant pistons for Formula 5000 cars. And so I have 77 photo albums, and I grew up at the racetrack with him uh, when I was really little. And then um, he really uh, had this really strange man named Earl Madman Muntz who won and lost more fo- fortunes, very first guy to bring the $99 black and white television set, very first guy to bring a, a uh, two Los Angeles, um, a Sony Betamax machine. Yeah. And so, uh, and my dad being uh, um, working on a lot of like Disney cars um, ended up, uh, ended up working on a lot of different projects and that that turned into him starting a video electronic company that became man of the deck in the video industry invented all types of video electronics and died with 27 patents and color correction so i just spent a lot of time um you know learning video hanging out with video engineers i didn't hang out with kids i hung out with adults handed them you know pepsis took out their trash and they taught me things and um those are lessons that i can't learn any other way you know that's maybe who i am today that's intense jim that's really intense. That's uh, that's some uh, really brainiac kind of stuff when you get down to it. Yeah, you know, we were the very first people to ever load video into hard drives. Um, Sony was trying to do it for $550,000. We're using what's called run length encoding. Okay. And um, I installed myself in Kennebunkport, Maine, Camp David, OEB, executive of the White House building for the President of the United States. Um, what, what you're almost talking on right now, like the Skype, the very first um, 354 um, you know, uh, lines that were proprietary for the, for the president of the United States. So they would do store and forward. And every single day, the president of the United States watches the news feed on what the world is being told. Back in the day, they used to have it on a tape and they wanted to be able to ship that. And so we would actually record it and we would ship it over a phone line, decode it, and they would actually watch it. And it was one of the very first, you know, pieces of technology that started the whole internet boom and the way that we, you know, view and, and process video today. But, those are big lessons that I learned and, and uh, made me think, you know, cool stuff. That's really cool stuff. So, Super cool. Wow. Uh, so, so when, when did you just. I know, it sounds ridiculous. Well, it's, it's, it sounds sci-fi. It's just crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. But, you know, the people were like, my dad literally went around the world and he found people that um, it, it literally invented the video industry. I mean, guys who, like guys that built the very first chroma key or guys built the very first cross point latch that switched A to B. 
Mike Talent, who invented the very first time-based corrector. I've worked with um, the very first A to D converter was built by um, the guy at Linco, Bruce Blair, who, um, you know, uh, lived right up the street from Farnworth who invented television. And so these are the people that were my, my mentors and people I got to hang out with, people that no one else would have access to. Their hair stood up. They were smart. They, uh, you know, they, they were, they never had a tan in their entire lives. Didn't relate to anybody. <laughs> uh, very strange, but yet extremely bright. So, yeah. That is fascinating. So when did your dad hunt too, or, or is that just something that came on your own ground? It's funny because my dad, um, you know, my elk are my passion in my life, you know, yeah. and my dad was really funny. You know, he, he, he would have like big coats on that he had stuff custom sewn on and big Bowie knives. And he's <laughs> like, just, Oh, the pictures are hilarious. Right. And big Weatherby. And, um, still my dad died and never killed an elk. In fact, the rumor has it when my dad was, when I was 12 years old, my dad bought me my very first bow when I was 12. And, um, that year we practiced all year long and I practiced and they really didn't practice. Well, him and my uncle got up and they went up on top of this hill and they found three little spikes and they went up, went up there and they missed them all. And I begged him. I'm like, dad, man, if I would have had a chance, I would have hit one of them. I please bro. Let me, let me uh, skip school tomorrow. I really want to go up there and chase an elk. Come on, man. I want my opportunity. He was like, no, no, no. And then a couple hours later, he, he right before I went to bed, he's like, okay, you're going to skip school. You can go at this tomorrow. So if the funny part about it is the three of us went over the top of the hill, went down over the top and I looked down and sure enough, this little spike they had shot at the day before stood up and I basically pulled the bow back, closed my eyes, pulled the trigger, hoped for the best, shot him right through the liver. The bull went like 30 yards and fell over dead. And then I was legendary because <laughs> I, thir- I was basically 13 years old, shot my very first bull elk. And, um, you know, I found this is something I can do. This is something I'm good at. And back then, we didn't know which side of the stream to look on. I mean, we did, there was nobody that you could learn anything from. I only knew three bow hunters in our entire town. Like, I mean... The hills were ourselves, you know, it's right. like, and that was the start of something that just became a passion. That first arrow, as Nugent says, the mystical flight of the arrow is contagious. And once you shoot the first one, it just doesn't stop. It keeps rolling. It's part of your life. It's in your DNA. It's who you are. Right. Right. That's, that's true. That's so true. Yeah. Once you take your first shot and it's, uh, it's, it's stuck with you forever. That is amazing. For sure. So you've stuck, I mean, like, like your dad studied the, 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 digital age you you studied the bow shot and you've gotten into some pretty technical stuff regarding that you want to tell us a little bit about your studies you know i i am um, i don't know why i've always had a technical brain you know um and so i didn't want to make any more mistakes i mean no one on earth has made as many mistakes as i have you know um and uh, you know, that's from controlling your adrenaline to controlling your breathing, to thinking correctly, to building a system and a regiment that you follow. I think a lot of weekend warriors just, you know, if they can hit a pie plate at 40 yards, they're in. But um, I wanted to be able to shoot effectively. I wanted to know my real effective range. I wanted to be able to understand the bow. And by the time I was 15, I had full access to our machine shop. So, you know, I was taking a lot of the early PSE bows. Uh, Pete Shepley was one of my absolute heroes. He's probably the only guy that's actually owned a bow company that physically is hunted on the ground, you know, um, and they were at one time the largest bow company in the world. But I used to try to turn them up with Stratoflights. I, I built a bow myself that was over 400 feet a second that shot a, a 22 and a half inch arrow using stops that we use like string stops now. 
But I looked at the draw force curve. The very first time I looked in bow hunter and saw a draw force curve and understood it for the first time, I built this bow that went over 400 feet a second. People are still trying to do it today. It sounded like it was dry, dry firing. It had, you know, teardrops on it. But I, um, I was building like overdraws on the opposite side of the rest and they come back and they clear the cables and, I was tr- experimenting with all these forward handle things that I machined. I just was doing all kinds of wacky stuff. And um, surprisingly, I lived through that and I didn't hurt myself. <laughs> right, but um, right. I love I love the archery stuff. So, you know, in the recent years, um, one of the things I've, I'm amazed at is how the archery industry has just wrapped their arms around me. Um, you know, people have found out and they've watched the show and they've seen how I've been able to shoot. And that's and then all of the commercial related stuff in the background from a marketing perspective with our companies. And so, um, you know, I've done every kind of a high speed test. I think there's only like three archers in the world that have done the study that we have to understand how they physically work. And from that, a lot of products, a lot of improvements. And, um, the big thing for me is, is that I'm, I'm for everybody. I want to help everybody. It's archery is not about competition. It's not about, you know, with competitiveness, you know, there's growth. And with the more research we do and the more that we know, it's safer. It's more ethical. People are actually, um, you know, making the shots better. The arrow flight is changed. And so, you know, I've been working on a bunch of projects this year, but the stuff that I've learned through high-speed photography is unbelievable. And uh, just comparing product to product, never trying to slander anybody, but even secretly calling them and going, dude, I did this test and the results, and this is what I found. So, and I, I love archery. It's who I am. Gotcha. Can we talk about some of those studies a little bit? Well, let me just talk about this. Like, I know that um, one of the things that I, I worked on, um, you know, although the weight's physically on the string, when you start to draw the bow, it takes the weight. And my personal bow that I just built, a Frankenstein on this year, has almost 400 pounds of, of cable tension on it. And when you start to draw the bow, it moves that weight to the control in the bus cable. With a stiff rod and the way that the risers are actually designed, um, it actually bends the riser. So I used to take a camera at 2,700 frames a second and count at the settling time and watch the riser actually distort. That's one of the reasons why a lot of riser manufacturers or bow manufacturers have actually changed the risers and went to like I-beam type designs to stiffen up the riser and try to knock the weight out of it. But also you have to realize when that weight is off the side of a, of um, like remember the carbon fiber rods back in the day? Yep. They used to have the sliders on them. Well, when I first started understanding what that meant was, is that the arrow goes through two apexes before it leaves the boat. So you have one everywhere there's an action, there's a reaction. So you have it both horizontally and vertically. It apexes in both directions. The spine has to be perfect in order for it to change. And that is dynamic spine. Um, there are two types of spines in arrows in the way that they actually react. But that carbon fiber rod, I used to sand them until they would physically bend. And then years later on the Bowtech bows now, we have... We have a flex guard. Well, you can take and draw that through a hooter shooter, watch it on the wall and watch the laser pointer. And you can see where over half the lateral movement is taken out of the arrow. Whenever we can get it into full gyro and correct it quicker. And then a lot of people talk about what's called parallel knock travel. Well, the center of the bow is not the center of your hand. The booger buttons try to go lower and lower and lower as we started to work on, um, you know, um, let off cam timing. There's a lot of issues that happen with an overall bow so that you can have performance as well as shootability, and then you have to have the speed. So all these things play a factor in the overall development of it. But if you look at the way a lot of them are manufactured now and um, parallel knock travel, like the bow I'm shooting right now, is within a quarter of a knock. I basically take a, dr- a line that is completely horizontal on the, on the wall, mm-hmm. and then in slow motion, I actually track that knock travel. 
And um, this has to do with the spine of the arrow. And th- and we made some major, major, major improvements in arrows this year. This is like one of the largest things. I almost spent um, a big portion of my year on arrows in general, like not only in studying, but working with a top manufacturer as well as some engineering level people in order to look at what the next arrow looks like. It's interesting you just said that because as you're describing the improvements to the bow in your studies, I'm thinking, well, all this has to lead back to a more improved arrow, pretty much. Yeah, it does. Like it's it's about it's about shooting it out of it. But one of the things that really surprised me, um, you know, a lot of people. I can't tell you. Um, I try to listen to everybody, and I take critiques on what I do right and what I do wrong. And I feel like I am myself, and I cannot be bought for money. I've stayed true to myself. I don't solicit products that I don't believe in. Half the things that are on my body or in my pack, I buy. Um, would people give them to me? Absolutely. But then I'm accountable to each one of them. And so I'm very, I'm not like a big product guy. I really believe in it or I don't shoot it. And, um, through the learning process. And so one of the things that I had looked at, um, everybody comes to me and says, Oh my gosh, I learned so much from your show. You are such a technical archer. And I feel like I don't even do any teaching because the balance between the entertainment of the hunting and the teaching are two different segments of the market and whether people do or don't want to view it, you know, and uh, my show has been rated number one on and off out of 400 programs over the course of time Been very blessed that way. And you can't buy audiences. They either like it or they don't. But the big thing that um, I did is I did the thing for Dickies and the network came to me and said, Jim, can you come up with three really high end tips, things that people have never heard about before and teach them something that you do. And I said, well, I just want to talk about arrows. I want to talk about spine of arrows because a lot of people are buying very expensive arrows on straightness. Now, straightness is important, but I can't outshoot straightness. Now, a guy like Tim Gillingham or, um, uh, um, you know, Levi Morgan, um, people that shoot an arrow for a living um, at that competitive level, uh, guys that can actually field archer like that. They talk a lot about the straightness of the arrow, but in my testing, I believe that a lot of people are spending a lot of extra money for straightness when they should actually be looking at spine alignment. So there's a weak and a, there's a weak spine and there is a stiff spine on every single arrow. So I used to take a water bucket, like you can take your, your metal bow box and you fill it with water. Then you take the knock and you cut it off so that you just have two blunt ends. So it can't have any tails. You stick it in the water and the arrow will automatically rotate to the spine. Then you take a marker and you mark that point and then you dynamically can check the spine on every single arrow. So that weak part as it's coming out of the bow is not rotated and oriented in, in different directions. Now I'm not bragging, but uh, in my life, um, I only took one picture of one group I've ever shot and with no, with no, without a shadow of a lie, um, call it the lottery draw, call it you won poker and did a straight. Um, but I shot four arrows at a hundred yards and all four fletches were touching. Now that was with pins and without a magnifier. And on average, I try to shoot what I call a quarter minute and uh, without an arrow tune. So let's say that we had two archers, they were competing side by side and they both could shoot equally and one tuned their arrows, uh, with the spine alignment and the other one didn't. Um, then in fact, uh, the guy that spined the line would win. It's very important though, that you cut the arrows and put the insert in there 
before you actually spine align because it'll rotate almost 18 degrees. So I'm basically telling you this is a trick that you can do with any arrow that is carbon made, what's called a pre-preg rolled process, so they don't have any retention in memory. And then um, I worked with um, a very, very intelligent man who I really believe has changed an entire company with Victory Archery, Steve Greenwood. When he came in, he was a he was a grown up, bro. He worked really hard, and he built the very first spine aligned shaft based upon you know my early findings and and the amount. Of, I had over three thousand emails off that one show. Wow, people wanting to know more about spine alignment, and that told us that the audience was waiting for something. Uh, that technology and to look at it. So every single arrow that comes from a victory shaft now has spine alignment. The very first one, I'm very proud of that. And now there's some more arrow technologies that I can't talk about that I'm under non-disclosure with right now yep. that we're working on to um, to improve it. But sorry to be long-winded, but this stuff's important. We got to talk about it. That's very important. It's 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 very technical. So could how do you how do you describe that to like the layman the person that that doesn't get engaged in this stuff can you can you kind of summarize it for somebody yeah so here's this here's a really quick step on how you can improve your um your shooting and increase your effective range and tuning the arrow so it's really important that the arrow the bow is actually tuned and that you pick the right arrow and it's the right length and it's spine weighted for that particular draw weight. And there are some stuff from like Firenock as a reference. George at Firenock is one of the smartest engineers. He has five PhDs, uh, one of the smartest guys I've ever hung out with. He uh, he invented a special machine to be able to do this very simply. But what you basically do is you get, get your get your bow box, your metal bow box, fill it full of water so that it's like three or four inches. You plug both ends of the arrow. You okay. cut it to length, and you plug both ends of the arrow so that water cannot trap on both sides. Now, you can't just plug it with a knock on either side because that has tails on it and will affect its rotation. So it's important that those are skinny plugs. You put it in the water, and it will float. When it floats, it'll mark the spine directly up. Then take a marker and go ahead and mark that point. And then when you fletch your fletches, you're going to orient that fletch uh, your cock vein on that line okay. on every one of your 12 dozen. It'll only take a few minutes. And then your arrows are actually spine aligned. Now I can grab them and rotate them and bend them and feel it, but you'd have to have some sensitivity and you have to have some experience to be able to do that. But okay. this is just part of my journey on how to make the perfect arrow. Okay. All right. Very interesting. That's fascinating. So what, what else have you studied besides the, the spine alignment and the, the, stiffness of the bows what else has come across your path well, you think a, few is years, a few years back people got i got ornery and i talked about deflex and reflex risers and i see a lot of even professional shooters out there that don't really understand the dynamics and we have what we call fork tuning and um what we call a deflex and reflex riser in fact when the uh, when the Bowtech bow came out, the, um, uh, the invasion was a revolutionary bow. It had the five attributes on it. It had the cam timing that is actually like a sprocket in a chain in a bicycle. It has a, um, a very special like camshaft style or a crankshaft style axle in the bow that costs a lot of money, but it keeps for cam timing and let off. Pretty brilliant how the whole thing works. So, it's the most, it'll shoot the straightest arrow out of any bow made. But deflex and reflex risers has everything to do with hand torque. Hand torque is the one thing that I try to rid myself from. And if you 
one of the, you know, it's hard to explain here on the, on the podcast, but I'm going to go ahead and see what I can do about it. Okay. What I try to do is I try to load the bow. I want my hand. I have one point in my hand. That point actually goes into my joints and goes all the way up into my arm. In fact, a few years back, I did a special thing with my daughter on one of the shows and it's on my Facebook page that people can reference, but I show you how to properly hold that bow so that you have reference. You can't take the bow handle. And if you pointed right now and you took your other hand and you put, put it on your knuckle of your thumb Mm -hmm. and you tried to put that bow close to your body and then, and then grab the the bowstring. And as you start to lift that bow away from your body, you're going to watch your knuckle twist. And so you can't draw it like that. You have to actually have your hand in place, extended, your arm fully extended with pressure from the string before you start to draw that bow so that you're in line. And the deflex and the reflex riser has everything to do with the speed of the bow. And we're not talking about settling times. We're not talking about what I call lock time, which is like if two bows went at 360 feet a second. And even though they both went 360, it's the amount of time that it takes for that arrow to physically leave the bow. This has everything to do with like drop time cycles, like how long the rest should be up, how much guidance we have, whether it's going through the second apex that actually has collision. There's just so much to this stuff. It looks so simple and everybody who's shooting 40 yards, whatever. But, um, you know, I mean, I made catastrophic long shots. Like I hate to say them and everybody bashes me for it, but, um, every single arrow I shoot, I'm responsible for every one of them I practiced. There are a lot of conditions. I have what I call my go, no go gauge. I draw the bow. I look for my rhythm. So here's a real tip. Here's, here's one of the most amazing tips in archery. And okay. if anybody's listening to this should actually record it, listen to it, reference it, send it to their friends. It should become completely viral because I'm going to tell you for the first time, the difference between becoming a really good shot and a mediocre shot. Okay. So this is the way 99.9% of all people shoot a bow. They draw the bow and you want to be able to relax your front arm. You do all the steering with the back. And you have to dynamically and statically balance the bow and you have to have enough pressure and the draw length has to be right to where I can pull my front arm against my back arm to create tension to where the pin physically sets. So a few years back as a reference, I was shooting a baseball off the end of a bat at a hundred yards in front of 50,000 people at a baseball stadium. Now I would have been booed off that, right? right? So I would have been booed. I mean, think about that. The pressure, it's one thing to do it in my backyard, but it's another thing to do it in the wind, in front of the 50,000 crowd, completely nervous. And if I could not have hold the pin in the ball, the odds of me hitting that are none. The bow, the arrow, my aiming, the tune of the bow, everything had to be perfect to hit that baseball off the end of a bat. The only way I can do that is to hold that pin in that ball. So what I do is I actually teach people with a laser. So you go down to 7-Eleven and you buy a $20 laser. You take some tape and you tape it onto your riser. Now, I don't want that laser in your sight picture. I want the pin that you aim with every day. And I want you to start at 20 yards. And at Home Depot, you can buy these one-inch round little tabs that have a nail in the center of them. And you go ahead and you put those in the target, okay? Okay. And at 20 yards, your, your wife, your kids your spouse, uh, your dad, whatever, 
takes a little video camera on his phone and I want him to videotape that the sporadicness of that laser hitting above the target, not in your sight picture. Okay. Okay. And all I want you to do is I want you to draw the bow, pull your forearm against your back arm, start to create tension and see if you can actually hold that pin in that one inch round dot. And if you can, and you do your very best, then you would now have the very first day, what that laser looked like. And in an average archer's mind, this is the way it looks like. They're like, okay, here it comes. The pin's coming up into the orange dot. It's almost there. And then your mind goes from like aiming to triggering. And then as it starts to float through the spot, you start to get on the trigger. And then when you float through it, you're hoping that your balance and embodying and what your eye was looking at was aligned when it went off to be able to hit the orange dot. But what if you could actually use that tension between your front and back arm? What if you could actually, you might have a little too much stabilizer weight. You might have had your sight a little too far out because your rest and your sight should be the same distance, fork tuned, in order to have very little hand torque. And then you made your draw length perfect to where you're pulling your front arm against your back arm. And so for one week, what you do is you sit at that target starting at 10 yards and you do not fire an arrow, not one. You have to discipline yourself to not fire an arrow. Hmm. You draw the bow, you hold the pin in that orange dot as best you can. You stop your breathing and then you draw back down when you burn your oxygen, relax, rest, draw back. And one week later, you will not believe you go ahead and videotape that laser again and you won't believe how your rhythm has slowed down. It teaches you to micro aim. That's one of the biggest tips I have. And I'm sorry to be long winded, but um, that's a good one. I, th- I think you had to be long winded on that one. I think that's important. That's, that is, that might be the best tip we've ever had. Uh, Agreed. On this podcast. That's, in- that's incredible. And, and you have to be detailed about that one because there are a lot of little points along the way that help you become a better shooter. And if you don't tell it exactly yeah, as you did, Jim, we, we, we don't get, get from point A to point B. That's really amazing. And there's, there's, there's one more simple one that I'll just run through really quickly that'll help um, a, uh, an average shooter too. What I want everybody to do is I want everybody to grab their release and put it in their hand. I want them to look at the majority of them shoot a claw. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, a really good reference. I don't shoot for this company, but I think one of the best little releases is called the little goose from Scott. It's one of the ones that I start a lot of people on. Um, one of the things I do when they're first starting is I put their thumb behind their neck, but I want you to take the release, whatever caliper release you have, I want you to put it in your hand and I want you to just watch the claw and I want you to start to apply pressure on the trigger and watch how much travel you have to add before those claws start to open. Okay. And a professional release, like a back hinge release or anything, uh, maybe like harder, anything that like we shoot professional with, it has a snap trigger on it. We have uh, tension sets, and I want to talk about loading the trigger. This is so important. Okay. So everybody, 99% of the people I teach and I look at, their draw lengths are too long, number one. Number two, you have to pick a release before you pick a draw length. This is so important because you can vary over an inch on your draw length depending on how long the release is. So I want you to shorten the release up, and a lot of times it's so short that they have a hard time putting it on the string because they feel like, that triggers too far behind in their palm of their hand. Mm-hmm. But now I want you to know how much pressure it takes. So when you draw the bow, you're going to draw it. You're going to put your finger on it. Then you're going to start to relax and you're going to start to aim. I want you to load your finger clear into the 
to the far joint of your knuckle with that trigger, and I want you to start to apply pressure, knowing how much it takes for it to go off. The time from when you say, I'm going to trigger, and that your finger actually moves is way too much time to add up. But if you start to preload that trigger and you get it the exact right length, you won't believe the difference in your group sizes. This is another one of the major tips that's really simple that you got to go through to tune that and understand it, and you'll increase your effective range. Okay. Those are some amazing tips that that's just – I'm going to go out and start them tomorrow because I know I'm not <laughs> – <laughs> I know I'm not that great a shot, uh, but – this stuff is is priceless. So, Jim, thank you for sharing that that information. No, no problem at all, bud. Let's no let, problem at all. Let's let's transition a little bit in, into the hunt itself. We kind of get in the technical aspects of the the bow shot and the anatomy of a bow shot, and that's just just blew my mind. Let's talk about transitioning some of that into into the hunt itself, and specifically about what you do, Jim. Let's talk about some mule deer hunting, if we could, and. I'm kind of curious, yeah, like, as to, um, like what what do you bring into the woods with you? And I like to have kind of Dusty you kind of run us through your your gear check. What what, what do you do there? You know, um, I'm very simple. Like I really am. Like I hunted in tennis shoes most of my life. I just used my wheels and my legs to get wherever I needed to go. <laughs> um, I'm not real fancy on my gear. You know, I find a I find disappointment in most of the products that are built. People try hard, but. I think they only go to about 90%. You know, they don't really go to 100%. They don't really think things through enough. And I think a lot of that is just the people who are actually manufacturing the products don't actually use a lot of it themselves, you know, and they're looking for feedback. But then most people are all just sponsor hungry. So they're willing to say how great of a product it is okay. and not really give real feedback, you know, right. just, it's honestly. Right. Um, but I, uh, uh, I think the big thing is, is that I want things attached to my body. I spot and stalk on the ground, right? I have to, in daylight hours with a cameraman over my shoulder, I have to get it done. And I haven't shot one animal in 12 years that is not on camera. I've shot over a thousand big game animals with my bow. On average, I shoot between 50 and 70 big game animals a year, including Africa. And so I just do it over and over and over again. And so I want things strapped tight. I want, I want to be able to be mobile. Um, knee pads are a big thing. Sometimes I put them underneath my, my jeans. Um, gigantic, uh, my binoculars. I, you know, I'm not talking about product, but I, there is not another pair of binoculars other than Swarovski. That's it. That's the bomb. I believe that everybody should own a pair. Okay. Like it's hard to come up with that cash, but it's like, it's the ultimate. You can't live without them. Um, believe it or not, the best rangefinder made is made by Leica. I, I told my wife a long time ago, I said, I don't care how much money I make. I've arrived when I have a Bowtech in my hand, I have a night force on top of my firearm. I have a Leica rangefinder and a pair of Swarovski binoculars. So I guess <laughs> I've arrived. So you have that stuff now, I take it. Yes. Yes. And it's like, right. everybody's like, why is he using one over another? Because I can't be bought for money because that is the best product made. Like it, take it, leave it, whatever it's who I am. Right. Makes sense though. It does very if much. You find so. something, if you find something that works and you believe in, why not use it? It's my moneymaker, you know? Absolutely. I want to be, I want to be a, I want to be a buck richer. It makes sense though. Yeah. Get in a little more detail on uh, what what kind of bow setup are you using when you're hunting? Man, I don't know if I can tell you because everybody like Bowdex not real happy with me if I start telling you about the Frankenstein stuff. One of the things I've been working on this last year is strings. Strings are just a gigantic thing. 
I look at limb deflection. Um, you know, who's to say that the top and the bottom limb doesn't actually have two to four pounds of limb deflection and the balancing of that. So I have a bunch of like very big tuning things. But right now, I basically took a Boss, which is the best riser I've ever shot, with an Insanity XL limb and a cam. And then I worked out my own geometry and built a string set um, that, and I'm shooting, my eyesight's not as good as it's ever been, but I'm shooting better than I ever have in my entire life. Um, and that has to do with holding, you know, and the bow that I built. So I built two of them and I'm really proud of them. And I'm also using that quivalizer. And um, Dan Evans had the first stab at probably the most innovative site ever built. He has a multi-pin that actually has a movable that slides out of the way. And then it has a single pin all built into one site. Totally innovative, off the chart, cool. And when I'm mule deer hunting, that really helps. Because as you're starting to stalk a mule deer buck, and I have some rules I have. Everybody says, like, you have way too many rules. I've had uh, many outfitters tell me, you have too, way too many rules. But I look at animal <laughs> behavior. Animal behavior is the one thing that separates an animal will do things over and over and over again in the same repeated order. And if you use them to your advantage, it can really help you. So let's just go back out. If we close our eyes and we imagine the ultimate mule deer hunt, it would have to be in Alberta, Canada in late August as the bucks still are in velvet and they're laying in the canola fields. Some of the biggest deer in the entire world live in Alberta, Canada. And for the last like literally eight years, I've taken a buck over 170 inches with my bow. And I've learned a lot over the years. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've stalked some just giant bucks. And um, I don't approach under 40 yards. Now a mule deer, when he lays down, he actually takes his, he takes his legs and he blocks his vitals when he's laying in his bed. And when a mule deer buck stands up, he tips his head down and then his ass comes up and then his front shoulders come up and he gives you the perfect amount of opportunity to be able to draw the bow. So if you're under 40 yards, um, most likely that mule deer buck will freak out when he stands to look at you and he'll run to 80 or 90, turn around for about five seconds, look at you and then bound off. Okay. A white tail always jumps from his bed and runs. But if you approach at 40, 40 is a magical number. I have found at 40 yards, if the buck tips his head, stands up, he will, even if he sees you, he will totally stand there and give you the perfect amount of time to be able to shoot him right through the vitals. Hmm. And, uh, that's like, uh, one of the major tips that I've given a lot of people that have, that have hunted and stalked mule deer, you know, and now I've, I've taken, you know, well over 60 mule deer bucks with my bow. And, um, and I just, you know, I've done it over and over and over again and, and using the animal behavior, just like that, knowing how he's going to react when he stands up, knowing what he's going to do when he stands up, knowing the fact that he'll stand and look before he runs is an important factor. These are all animal behavior things that are simple, that you understand them, you do them enough and you repeat it and you have it logically in your brain, you follow the procedure and you get it done. Gotcha. Gotcha. Wow. So Jim, what, what? Uh, let's transition a little bit from the, the mule deer to the whitetail. What animal behavior patterns have you noticed in the whitetail that you can use to your advantage? Well, you know, the, the one thing, more hunts have been blown by wind than any other factor on planet Earth. Wind is the number one factor. So here is the largest whitetail. Everybody's hunted them. It's the number one animal in North America, 27 subspecies. You know, millions of people buy a tag every single year. Here's the number one tip shoot out of a tree stand ever. 
I believe in nose nosebleed stands. So if I'm going to, and I've hunted with a lot of guys that have shot a lot of big deer and they say that I'm ridiculous, but it doesn't matter. It's who I am. It's I'm not going to waste my time and I want to shoot whatever comes in. So here's the number one tip. You take your hat off and you walk every pinch, every bottle. And if you peripherally can see your stand with your hat off on the ground, that stand is too low or positioned in the wrong spot. Always use some really good cover back. No, no backlight. You want some green background, what I call the 60% contrast ratio in the back. Mm. And then here's your number one tip. You can take a stump burner and um, you can build a paste out of it. And again, I have this recipe on my Facebook page. And you build this paste and you have to take a pan. And the pan has to have tall sides because it's extremely, it's, extremely, um, it's extremely hot when you do this. Okay. Then what you do is you go up on an average day with that average wind current that is in your spot. And after you found that right height to where you peripherally can't see yourself, you build a smoke bomb and then you set in your tree stand and you check that smoke bomb and you'll watch those thermals and what they do. And what it does is it sees whether or not that wind current will ever touch one of the trails that those bucks come in and out of. Picking the tree is the, the recipe. Shooting the deer is easy. Getting them to come to that spot's easy. But getting them to not wind you and finding the right tree to become a predator is the most difficult part in the whitetail woods, in my opinion. Um, and so that, that is a major, major thing looking at those wind currents. An animal might tolerate seeing you. He might tolerate hearing you. He will not tolerate smelling you. Hmm, that's fascinating. So where have you been all this time, Jim? Yeah, this, this, this is amazing. So it sounds like you're just a, a student of all things um, outdoors, uh, whitetail, mule deer, anything that has to do with hunting. Sounds like you're just a student of of everything in life, for the matter for that matter. Do you, do you consider I don't know. yourself I that? Just, I like thinking about stuff. I like thinking about stuff, you know? Um, my favorite, I think my favorite thing to do on, on planet Earth, I mean, I'm going to be running around in a freaking wheelchair when I'm 90 trying to kill elk. Like, that's just my yeah. thing. Calling elk is my yeah. number one thing. I tell everybody that I'm not patient. I look like a giraffe. I sound like an elephant. <laughs> um, you know, I'm six foot six. Um, I've had to learn to shoot because I can't stalk with the crap. But the one thing that I can do in life is kill elk. Like, that's my... That's my thing. Like, and that's where I get supercharged. Everybody says, do you have any more adrenaline? And I say, no, I don't have adrenaline very often. Only when I'm hunting elephants in Africa or I'm hunting something dangerous or one of my kids is doing. But the, what, the, the thing that I get off on, the, the one thing that I feel like God put in my heart that makes the hunt really successful for me yeah. is me shooting the magical triangle. Me shooting them in the 12 ring, not the 10, the 12. It's hard to stalk around, be in uneven ground, be in an awkward position, knowing your equipment so well, aiming to the point that nothing will take over your brain other than executing and looking at that shot. So this is how I get off. My right eye, I aim, and I always bubble level with my left. And I'm aiming with my right eye. And when I pull my front arm against my back arm, let the pin physically um, start to settle, come up on the target, never down on the target, hold that spot until the bow physically goes off. And when I'm aiming with my right eye and I watch the arrow because I shoot with both eyes open, strike the mark that I just shot with my left eye and it goes in the spot, that right there is Jim's heaven. <laughs> gotcha. Right. I love that because I didn't, 
I didn't just stalk the animal. I didn't just get close enough. I shot him in the 12 ring. And when I do that, he's going to live 25 seconds. And that for me is the most ethical way that I can bow hunt. Now I'm not perfect. I've made every mistake there is, but I've strived for that. I've worked for that. I've earned the, I've earned every one of them that I've been able to shoot in the spot. Gotcha. Tell me more about the 12 ring. What is that? What is that to you? Oh, it's just a term. Like when, uh, when you're shooting 3ds, I used to shoot 3ds when I was, when I was younger, you know, my whole family, we traveled around on Sundays and I used to compete and stuff. And so, um, for me, it's what they call the X ring Western extreme with the X means something to me. So I always talk about shooting the X ring or the 12 ring that there's an, a, you know, there's a five and an eight, a 10, and then the 12 would be a double X like in the spot. Okay. So sweet. Gotcha. All right. One of the things, Jim, that I've noticed is that you've expressed yourself on some of your social media pages when, when you encounter somebody that is an anti-hunter and you raise some amazing, amazingly great points. And I was wondering if you could kind of share some of your, your beliefs about those that aren't into hunting that take that extra step to actually go out of their way to make your, your day a bad day just because you're a hunter and they're not and don't believe in it. Yeah. I'll never make an excuse. One of the things I've done is I've talked to a lot of young boys who are out chasing young girls and, um, you know, in school. And I've, I've heard a lot of young men that will not stand up for their hunting heritage or their family because they don't want to be persecuted by some of the young girls that they're in school with. And it's, and it's who we are. Like, I mean, it's, it's, they don't understand the whole recipe, but you're right. I've been attacked, um, here or there, nothing really aggressive. Um, some of my own neighbors, um, some of the things that they've said to me and, and, uh, what I stand for, but I am not ashamed of anything. And I, I believe that I've done a lot of my own research and the things that I truly believe in. And I think it's important that we don't fight that, you know, one of the things that everybody talks about is a trophy hunter. Oh my gosh. How many times have I heard that trophy hunting is negative? I've heard trophy hunting is negative from a lot of people in the media, a lot of people that are in our sport that trophy hunting has a bad negative connotation. And this is what I want to say to everybody. When a hunter puts value on an animal in every single case, there are more of them. If you look at South Africa, South Africa has hundreds of thousands of animals that, that are running around on private ranches and, and, and put into indigenous places and raised and all because of a hunter dollar. So let me give you an example. A few years ago, I was on, I was in uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. And I was working with the Angadi Gear Association. Recently, I became a national spokesperson for the Mule Deer Foundation, and I've been speaking more and more on, on conservation and what that means. And so I was there to observe. So Grandpa said, hey, through all the cousins in the back of the truck, all the grandsons, everybody, there's about six or eight of us. Now, they take 22 rifles, way too small, 22 long rifles, way too small to take a deer. But that's what they hunt with. There's no way to judge them or to tell them right or wrong. That's all they have access to. And it's Grandpa's ranch, Right. None of the kids have been through hunting safety course. None of them have been truly educated. And the only value of that mule deer is meat. So everybody jumps in the back of the truck. We roll around. And that night, I was so surprised because every fawn, every doe, every buck, anything that we saw, if there was a deer sighting, everybody in the back of that truck started to unload. Hmm. Why? Because that animal only had meat value. A mule deer buck is worth more than meat. So our whole, every non- non-hunter, every anti, every 
woman that doesn't understand why we love to dress up in makeup and camouflage and smell bad, right. <laughs> always ask, what are you doing with the meat? What did you do with the meat? And what I always say is the meat's important. The meat is, feeds our families. It's on our table. It's what we pride ourselves in. But the buck is worth more than that. If I had told grandpa that I was willing to pay $3,000 for every single um, animal, every single big mature buck on his ranch, he would tell them, boys, get out of the truck, go build some water holes, go post the fences. Let's figure out how to get them mule deer off that neighbor's ranch and on ours. Right. Because the value of them. And everybody could say, well, that's private. That's worth 3000 bucks." But that's what our tags and our licenses do. Every single billions of dollars that are being generated over a long period of time for all of the fish and wildlife and parks and wrecks, we fund it. We are the conservationists. We are the guys who love. We are the guys who pay to play. No one loves an elk more than I do. I want to spend time with them. I don't want to look at them on the side of the road every once in a while when I'm driving down there with my, you know, with my, um, with my Subaru, I want to get out of the truck. I want to go spend time with them. I want to go call them. <laughs> and so trophy hunting is the greatest thing ever. I, every time somebody says they don't believe in trophy hunting, I'm like, okay, so you want me to shoot the does and the fawns? Right. Is that way to do the game management? Oh no, no, no. Well, you want me to shoot the mature bucks, right? Then you are, you are for trophy hunting. You do believe in trophy hunting. But I think we don't fight. I think we're very logical. We don't get mad. We try to explain. We try to encourage. And we try to, I, I've often said, um, it's funny because Charlton Heston was an absolute army for our Second Amendment rights. Yeah. And his last address before he died to the NRA, he said, if we focus on anti-gun legislation, but we ignore anti-gun generation, we spend all of our time legislating and none of our time mentoring. In one generation, we will have failed. The last time I heard something negative about our sport, it did not come from a vegan or a vegetarian. It came from one sportsman complaining to another sportsman on how he or she spent their time afield. And I just think it's really important that we unify. I don't care. I don't care if you're doing it behind a fence. Yes, I said that out loud on your podcast. I don't care if you're, uh, you have a crossbow or you're your traditional archer or, or there's some new technology coming down with some air guns or you're using a, uh, a 338 Lapua or a 50 BMG, you have a deer tag. The outdoors means something different to you than it means to me. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to love you as a brother. So if you're doing it with a slingshot or a spitwad, if it's ethical and it's legal, I, Jim Burton, will stand with you, period. Gotcha. I love that, Jim. Absolutely, absolutely love that. All right, so what I'd like to do here, Jim, is you've been on a bunch of deer hunts, in your lifetime, you've killed a lot of deer, whitetails, mule deer. Is there one hunt in particular? If I ask you the question, what's your most memorable deer hunt? Is there one hunt that, pump, that pops into your head? Yeah, there is. There's one. Okay. Um, and even though I've shot a lot of big deer, I, I was actually out in Eastern Oregon and, uh, it was the very first year I could drive. And, uh, it was with my really good friend, Edgar. Sanchez and we had run around and I had got above these bucks and I knocked on a door and brought some Tillamook cheese and asked a farmer and if I could hang out and he said nah, I don't care if you go chase them so we ran around there and got on top of them and uh I hate to say this but it it was a long time ago and I was 16 years old okay and uh I had this buck standing on the side of the hill and he was slightly downhill and it was before we had good range finders. We had those eighty dash twenties that used the mirror reflector in a distance to look at the range. 
and uh, it it was longer than the than the eighty twenty. And um, I made a ninety two yard shot and shot a deer through the X ring, and he went down the hill like he'd been shot with a with a uh, <laughs> with a three hundred Weatherby Magnum. Wow. And I okay. my heart was so I was shaking so bad that I had to sit down and uh, catch my breath again because of the just being able to precisely aim and shoot that. And that's back in the day, dude, that's back when the bows don't look or act or shoot like they do today. Right. For sure. Yeah. Can you, can you elaborate on that a little bit more and, and just kind of tell us uh, kind of how that all got set up kind of like a play by play? You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot of recollection of, of anything other than the shot. You know, it was okay. a long time ago, but I, um, I think I got my, I got my roots for that. You know, it's like, uh, like one of the other elk hunts I remember, um, you know, back in the day, um, I was like a lot of people see me as an archer, but I'm, I'm equally ballistic cabled on long range rifles. Okay. And my father-in-law was a huge influence in my life. And we grew up in Tillamook, of course, and these hills would be so far across these drainages that there was no way that you could walk around for two hours, walk in the one green tree where you just saw the bull he was only out for 13 seconds and he walked back in again. So we would have a shooter and a, and somebody was watching through the spotting scope and we would watch where we were hitting and um, we shot across these canyons. And so in my early twenties, I bought a Mark four and I took the crosshairs out of it. And um, I started building, taking glue and thread and I was building my own reticle post up and down the, the <laughs> scope. Yeah. And then I took two eight foot pieces of plywood and I backed them up and I took my range finder and I, then they weren't exactly like 500, 600, 700, but they, they were referenced at, at those yardages where it fell in. And, um, and then I could shoot across those canyons and it changed my life forever. You know, um, being able to shoot long range like that. And I look at it now, that's something I should have patented. I mean, oh my gosh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and now BDC reticles and everything is based upon very similar technologies. And, and back then there were mill dots that, you know, six foot man that they yeah, used right, for right, mills. Right, right, right. Um, you know, but other than that technology that they were using with 308s, there really isn't anything to reference. And now, you know, our whole shooter thing blew up now, you know. And, um, so, you know, with what night force and everybody has is pretty amazing. Yep. I have a bunch of long range rifles and I did a lot of teaching with, um, high speed photography, watching the bullets and projectiles. I almost killed Ray bunny that time when I blew up the car, like just crazy stuff, like just doing stuff <laughs> that we shouldn't be doing. Getting right. wild. Of course. I play teenagers. How old are you now, Jim? I'm going to age myself. I'm 47 years old. 47. All right. You're not that much older than I am, so I can relate to a lot of this stuff. That's good. Excellent. Well, you guys are old. Yeah. Dusty's a little younger than both of us. I know. I Jim, know. We can still outwalk the 20-year-olds, though, man. You got heart. It's all mental. It's all mental toughness. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly right. Ten breaths, right. ten steps, take a man anywhere. That's exactly the right attitude. Hey, hey Jim, something I, I re <clears throat> recognize that you're super proud of and, and that uh, you seem through a video post that, that – uh, you thoroughly enjoy and that's hunting with your daughters. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how old your daughters were when they got started and, and how they're doing today? Yeah, I am a very lucky man. I, I got married. Uh, I got married to my high school sweetheart. Lori um, uh, doesn't have a selfish bone in her body. Moral compass points exactly North and um, is not selfish. And she's been an amazing mother and I have five kids. So I have three older, uh, two older boys and three girls. 
Um, my oldest son, Randy, you know, he started shooting a thousand yards when he was 12 years old. Very, very technical on the firearm side. And then I have a, uh, my son, Jeffrey, who's extremely mechanical and, um, Victoria, that's like, uh, just like her mother. And then Caitlin, I call her my 70s funky chick. She's super, super funny. And, uh, um, she's uh, a lot of fun. And then my youngest daughter, Elizabeth is, um, just got an amazing amount of grace and she's our singer of the bunch. And so, um, you know how you influence, I mean, here I am a professional hunter. I believe in hunting. My kids grew up around it and you wonder whether or not how much pressure you should be on when they start. Well, my boys are just ballistic. I mean, they're identical. They're identical to me. Their knowledge base, the way that they look at things, they're very logical. They're predators in every sense of the word. And then my daughter, ever for about four years in a row, I kept asking her, I'm like, hey, Tweet, I want you to go on a hunt with me. And she would always say, Dad, I'm really not ready. And um, the funny part about it is this is all executed on Western Extreme TV. And then um, the next year, she finally came to me and said, Dad, I'm ready to shoot a deer. And with a tear in my eye, my next question was, with a bow or with a gun? And she said, duh, Dad, with a bow. <laughs> and then the funny part about it is on the television show, she tells everybody that she goes, I just felt more confident with my bow than I would with my gun. And I was thinking to myself, what other girl on planet earth would say that other than a Burnworth kid? <laughs> right. I mean, I have more confidence <laughs> in my bow than with my gun. Uh, that's the... And that's because she grew up being an archer right. and uh, she just, you know, the other thing went bang and she could shoot the bow. Well, so it's funny because her very first buck, we were all together and, you know, you just get supercharged and we have a big buck contest at work. And I started calling all my buddies and everybody. I'm like, okay, I'm going to come off the road. I get to hunt with Victoria this year. I mean, this is big stuff. This is one of the biggest hunts of my life. I mean, and we got to win the big buck contest. None of that. Like, Oh, they have to start on a small one. Forget that. Right. Um, let's shoot them a big one. And, uh, <laughs> so, um, we couldn't find a really, really big buck. We had some game tracker cameras and it was like 27 degrees outside. It was too cold for Victoria. And I went to her and I said, babe, this is not a good day for you, but this is a good day for the deer. And if you'll give me five hours and you'll dress up, we'll get a buck today. And so we went and climbed in the tree stand and she had a beanie on and she had hands on, hands on her. Cause I always believe that you should never have anything on your hands. You should touch the riser. It'll affect your shooting. You shouldn't have any kind of a mask on your face. You have to feel the string on your face. Your release has to fit the spot. And so um, we were, I was over her shoulder. I was videotaping and I'm fiddling around and I look to my right and here comes a buck that we had no idea. Never got a game track figure, typical rut. Buck comes in, turns totally quarters away and she shoots him absolutely in the 12 ring, lives 20 seconds. And she was shaking so bad with excitement and the smile on her face. She about fell out of the tree stand. And the whole family came to celebrate. And that was like a really magical day. And then she, the next year, did the same thing. Early season, Buck came in, sat for four hours, believe it or not, and uh, shot one right through the 12 ring. And that, because of that experience that Victoria had with me spending time and understanding it, and all of the time that she spent with the bow, enjoying archery before she ever wanted to take an animal, and me never pressuring her but her always knowing that that was part of our lifestyle and who we are and she never d had disbelief in it it just didn't know whether she wanted to and the number one thing a woman wants to know when she's going to shoot an animal she wants it to expire quickly she doesn't want it to suffer so ethically shooting the right broadhead using the right arrow 
and having them tuned and practiced from an elevated position on a platform that's small really did help. And then she encouraged my other daughters to hunt. So it all just came full circle. And, um, and so like I just on public land this last few days, you know, we were able to, both my girls took four by fours, uh, in three days, the wind was blowing 25 miles an hour and it was cold outside, but we just went at it hard and they both were able to take great bucks where a lot of guys in Montana right now are jealous. That's fantastic. I love hearing that kind of stuff. That's great. Oh man. Jim, what, if you could pick one hunting tip of all the hunting tips that are out there and all the things you've ever experienced, if you could pick one, what would be your number one hunting tip of all time? It's not your camo. It's not your camo. It's not your, it's not your boots. It's not the bow. It's not the firearm that you use. The number one thing you have to do is learn and contend with the wind. It's the one thing that'll screw you up. Okay. You hunt the wind and it'll, it'll help you all the way around. You have to pay attention to it. There is no shortcuts when it comes to wind. Awesome. Love it. All right. So we all have these things in our packs that are good luck charms. They're pacifiers, I guess, in some sense. And this is, you feel naked if you left it in your truck before you walked into the, into the field. What's that one item you have to have with you other than your, your firearm or weapon that makes you feel comfortable when you're hunting? Jolly ranchers. Jolly ranchers. Interesting. <laughs> 100%, bro. 100%. Jolly Ranchers are a um, a reward system in camp with me. <laughs> <laughs> and when people find this out, they think it's funny. And I, I just got like three texts this year from other people telling other people. But it's, uh, it's, it's a way for me to make it lighthearted because hunting can be hard. It can be tough. It could, but a few of my friends like Josh Clough from HS Precision that I hunt out in South Dakota, he reminds me every year that hunting is not about what you shoot. It's about having fun with your friends, reminding me to laugh. And so my Jolly Ranchers, um, I reward people with, um, maybe they, and each one of them has a color code and a value. <laughs> and so, um, whenever I'm, I'm around somebody. So if you're, if you get a blueberry, the blue number five, Yep. You did not do a good job. <laughs> oh, that's and fantastic. if you got a watermelon, you're an ace. You found the buck that we're going to pursue. But, oh, that's um, funny. It may be something that I use as a joke, and it lightens everybody up, and um, it becomes a, a gag in a hunt every week. And it's probably an old joke, but it is my joke, and it's something I enjoy. And uh, I, and I love Jolly Ranchers. I always have. I love chewing on stuff. That's fantastic. I love that. It's the first time I've heard that on this show. All right. So if if you could, as the Jim Burnworth of today, the 47-year-old Jim Burnworth, if you could g- give a tip to the 20-year-old Jim Burnworth, what would, it, what would you say to him? Um, this might be a little long winded, but I have to tell you this one, this one, uh, this one thing. Um, I really believe that we look around and all of us are searching for what God intended in our lives. I feel like I'm the lucky one. I'm the guy that got to do what it is I love to do. My heart has been filled. I've had an extraordinary family. I've had an extraordinary ride. I've had extraordinary people in my life. And, um, I've got to work on 13 feature films in my lifetime as well. Mm-hmm back when we used to own the big video facilities. And there's a movie called Simon Birch. And it's a little movie about a little boy that was deformed. And um, it's a story of faith. And he just knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God designed him for this amazing purpose, this one thing that makes him who he is. 
And I think we all search in our whole lives. There's so many people that are 40 and 50 years old that search their entire lives and never truly find what it is they're designed to do. And on our deathbed, we look up and we go, is that it? Did we fulfill our destiny? What was really important? What are the four, three or four things that are, are really, really magical? It's like Bob Beeman, something as simple as jumping. He runs as fast as he can. He cuts a line. He jumps in the air. He lands. He turns around as a flashbulb captures this one moment. Right. An expression on his face that he just broke the world record by a foot and a half. And so I think all of the fears that we have as young people, as we live our lives through seasons, the first season is to educate yourself. The second season is to capitalize on what it is you know. And the last season of your life is your significant part that we try to put out of order. But if we just follow the faith that we have in ourselves, that we really listen to who we are, I was designed to be a bow hunter, bro. I was designed to use my technical mind. It has so many attributes. I have no idea how I ended up on TV. I have no idea the road that it took. It wasn't planned. It happened. But, you know, like my dad used to say, do everything in your life 1% better. Everything. If you just figure out, he used to say, I'm going to get out of my own chair. I'm going to go outside and I'm going to look back through my own window and figure out how to go kick my own ass. <laughs> And if you just take charge of life like that and you think about it and you really do care, you have to show up and you have to care. So I think I would have told myself, whatever your mind is thinking, whatever's in your heart, whoever you are, just do it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't be yourself and uh, follow it and don't give up. That's awesome. That's so good. Oh, man. So, Jim, where can we find you when uh, you're not hanging out here with us on the microphones? Where can we find you on social media and your, and uh, websites, things like that? You know, but I I, um, I try to get back to everybody. I really do. Um, um, and, um, I mean, I'm gone 200 days a year and stuff, but I, I'm, I'm really becoming more and more social. It allows me to reach out. It allows me to help, and it allows me to learn more. And so I'm on Facebook. Okay. And uh, everybody can, you know, write in, ask questions. I try to answer them best I can. And I'm not an expert at anything, but I just love what I do, and uh, I'm here to help. So if they want to go to, you know, Jim Burnworth's um, Facebook page, okay. I'm there. And if yeah. not, you can watch me on Western Extreme and choose your weapon in an outdoor channel. I'm going to be a lifer. Excellent. For sure. And how, when can we catch the show? on the outdoor channel. You know, but it, it varies. Like I think I have eight air times a week on and off and I don't know when those are right now. I really apologize. Once the shows are done, we do, we're doing almost a hundred episodes a year. Okay. So there are there, I just can't keep track of everything and everybody. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. That's, that's a lot of shows to keep track of. Just keep tuned into the outdoor channel and you'll find Jim, I'm sure. All right, Jim, this has been a pleasure and, and an honor, and uh, you filled our heads with great information, and I can't thank you enough for spending an hour with us and just giving us a little bit of insight into your world and seeing what's going on. I really appreciate you guys. You know, this this level of technology, the fact that you guys care, you know, so many, so many people from all walks of life um, are all connected by this thing called the outdoors that we love, and the more education we do, the more more that we care about it, the more that we're helping each other and mentoring. And technology like this is really educating. And I think that's what the Outdoor Channel and the radio podcast things are doing for our industry. Um, people are making better decisions. There's less poaching. There's more people caring. And uh, we're the ones that pay to play. So I want to thank both of you guys for everything that you've 
done and I'm sorry for being so long winded. So yeah. uh, you don't have to apologize for being long winded. We like that. We love you definitely shared some themselves. information. Yes. Definitely share some information and go a long way with everybody. All the listeners should learn from this podcast. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Jim. How about that, Dusty? Oh, man. That, that, that was phenomenal. Really, that, that, that's probably one of the most uh, technical podcasts that we've ever been involved with, Jay. Hands down. I think he's had some, I think he actually provided probably some of the best tips we've ever heard on the, the Big Buck podcast. Yeah, I'm gonna, I have to go back and listen myself. I have to go back and listen to this show a few times just, okay. just to make sure I got it right. I think that if you take the information Jim passed along to you, you are going to change the way you shoot. Yes. It will change your archery life for sure. It's going, it's going to perfect you in such a way that you're going to be an unbelievable shot. Yes. And wow, I could certainly use that because I'm 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 more or less one of those weekend bow shooters. I mean, I shoot in the backyard and I have fun, and I'm not a bad shot when I'm shooting at a you know immobile target, you know on on the down down on the archery range. But put me in real life, yeah, I've killed some deer with my bow and stuff like that. But I think I'm going to be a better bow hunter if I apply the things that Jim is talking about in this show. Oh yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Do you, I mean, I don't know how you follow this, Dusty, and you've done a pretty good job, but how do you follow that with the Chubby Tines Tip of the Week? Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about getting discouraged. You know, whitetail hunting is a mental game. It's so mental that it, it will literally force you into quitting hunting for the season. You, you're going to make mistakes, Jay. You're, you're going to mess up, and you're going to screw up, and you're going to have times that you're like, Man, if I just done this one little thing different, I would have been successful. Right. But along the way, it's really it's educating you, and it it's making you step your your game up just one, two, three notches. And that's something that I can't stress and embed enough. That don't get discouraged if you make a mistake in the whitetail woods. That's why we're hunters. That's why we go out there. For one, we we relax and enjoy the outdoors. But along the way, we learn how to be better hunters every time we go and sit in a stand. Seat time is is you can't buy it and you can't purchase information that you learn by being in your tree stand seat. But along the way, there's going to be ups and downs. And, that, and that's part of it. And I, I'm here to tell you that I, I've been in my lowest lows and I've been in my highest highs in the whitetail woods. But if you stick with it and you take all the knowledge that the, the, the whitetail or any animal that you're hunting it has to offer you, just by watching them, you, you embed all this knowledge of their habits and the way they react to different things and how they travel and all that information absorbs in and you become the sponge that that discouragement is now an educational process. You no longer get that discouragement. So, you know, bear with it. You're, you're going to get down. You're going to get out and you're going to say, I don't want to go hunting anymore. It's going to happen. Yeah. But just remember that at that point, get educated by either your mistake, your mess up, or your mishap, or your miss shot. Educate yourself on what you did wrong. And the next time that you're in that situation, you know what to do. You know how to handle it. You know what to do to make it right. Yeah. And from, from that point on, once you get that mental game on that, that it's just an educational process. If you screw up or mess up or miss or whatever happens, if you think about it in a different way, that mental discouragement goes away. And it takes a couple of years. Right. It's not going to happen the first three or four years. You, you may spend 10 years in the woods before you finally get confident enough to learn from your mental mistakes. So you're saying basically learn from your hunt, 
and take your failures as positive reinforcements to, to make you a better hunter. That's exactly right. And that's, that's hard to do for a long period of time. It takes years before you can do that. Yeah. And it's tough. There's times where before I just want to be like, Oh my gosh, I just, I just give up. I've done everything I thought I knew to do. I've done all this. I've done that. I've set this up right. I've learned. I've listened. I've, I've done everything that I know to do. But there's always that one next little small step that you figure out that this, this really, changes how things turn out so th- just stick with it take that mental negative and, and turn it into a positive and learn from it that is the quintessential probably one of the most important aspects of hunting is just learning and absorbing even the failures to and, and excite you to go back out because now you've learned how to overcome one of those things that didn't go well it's amazing once that you you learn how to do that how much more your hunts are enjoyable at that point on right and you basically just have to say to yourself, I don't know how this is going to go, but no matter what happens, whether I am successful or not, depending upon your definition, the point is that I'm in the field and that no matter what happens here today, I'm going to learn something or I'm going to enjoy something and it's going to get me back out here tomorrow. And you, you can't purchase that. There's no money can buy that. You know, it's, it's something that you embed in yourself and you go on. It, it's amazing. Once you get to that point where you're comfortable with a mistake and you learn from it, oh my gosh. Right. It's so valuable. Yes. It's, it's priceless. Be comfortable with your mistakes. That's, that's a great way to put it. Awesome. Yeah. Man. You know, and, and I think that, uh, after hearing Jim, I, I had to come up with a great tip of the week and I hope I did well. I think you did. My, my friend, my bro. You did well. So, Dusty, where can we find you when you're not hanging out here with me? Facebook. Well, uh, right now you can find me in the tree stand in the Whitetail Woods here in Ohio. But uh, <laughs> if I, if you, if we can find you, we, you know, because you, you keep it pretty tight. Right. You know, we can. If I, I'm not sure I can see with all your camo and keep it kind of tight lips. So I have to ask your wife where you hunt. But other than right. that, other than she, she sure knows how to tell too. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, you'd have thought you'd have put a thousand dollars in front of her, but really, you didn't put nothing in front of her. She just talks. You just ask. <laughs> Facebook.com forward slash Chubby Tines Outdoors. Facebook.com forward slash Chubby Gobbler. You can look me up on Instagram at Chasing Antler. Shoot me a follow and, and I'll follow you back. And, uh, you know, you kind of get in a little bit of my personal life. I'm not real active on Instagram, but I, I do post a few interesting things here and there. Jay, where can we find you when you're not in the woods chasing after the New Hampshire White? tail or on the mic well uh best place uh, to reach out to me is j at bigbuckregistry.com that's our email address you can check us out on facebook facebook.com forward slash bigbuckregistry and if you'd like to get one of your most recent kills featured on our facebook page in front of our 175,000 followers all you have to do is go to bigbuckregistry.com forward slash my buck and all the instructions will be there for what we require to have your buck featured on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash big buck registry. If you're in the middle of a hunt and you shoot a big deer and you'd like to call it, call in your excitement, uh, give us a call at 724-613-2825. And if you are an iTunes user or an Apple user, please Give us a review uh, about this show by doing a search for Big Buck Registry. And if you would please, 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 if you've listened to this show on an iDevice, hit that subscribe button right there and uh, let us know that you like the show because you pushed the subscribe button. Oh, man, I think that's a wrap. 
Big buck, big buck, everywhere a big buck. buck. Love that. I'm Jay Scott. And I'm Dusty Phillips. This is the Big Buck Registry's Big Buck Deer Hunting Podcast. We'll see you next week. Can't wait. Yeah.